The weather is finally getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year, like premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14 karat gold jewelry, and so much more. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost like the middleman that passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I love that. I am so excited. I have two gorgeous, lightweight cashmere sweaters coming my way. One camel, one heather gray. I cannot wait to wear them in the warmer months when it's chilly in LA. Throwing them over my shoulders. Going to look so cute. Can't wait. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash judging Megan for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah soft made with Tencel. It's so breathable with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is Megan Judge, and you are listening to Judging Megan. I'm your host. Um, I have to just right away go into this story. So um, we were at our friends, our really good friends' house over the weekend, and one of that one of them had lost a parent, which is obviously always a difficult thing to go through, no matter what age you are. Um, but I always like think it's important to find humor in everything, the good and the bad, or at least I try to. So we were talking about what would happen if like we had to pick who went first, which obviously is not a fun subject to talk about. But my husband and his best friend, Mike, whose house we were at was like, Mike right away said, Oh God, I would rather go. I would rather go before my wife. Like, you know, like I, I, I just can't deal with that pain. <laughs> and then right away, my husband goes, you know what? I just really think my wife should go first. I just don't think she could deal with me not being on this planet without, <laughs> without me. And I was like, oh, okay. And the funny thing is about Ron is, you know, we like to tease a lot in our, in our family and each other because we've been together quite a while. And so I always say that if something were to happen to me, that he's not allowed to get remarried and that he, if he does get remarried, that I'm going to haunt him and his wife. <laughs> so I have my, I have my beautiful guest on early before we were starting the show. And Nina, can you relate? You're happily married. Like, would you be okay if your husband got remarried? Oh, we've actually had this conversation. Okay, let's uh, and, hear it. And I'm, I'm flip-flop from you. So one, I have to die first because he's going to give such a great eulogy. He's actually really thoughtful and he's a great speaker and he will cry through the whole thing and it'll be beautiful because he's real emotional. So he, it would be the best eulogy ever. So I have to die first. And I actually would not let him get fixed because I said, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, you can pull like strong, what we call here in South Carolina, a Strom Thurmond. He was still having kids in his 80s. I said, you can just keep making babies. Like he's a great dad and makes great humans. I'm like, just make more of those great humans, you know, but I... Uh, I'm done. Shop's closed for me. So, yeah. I, so just, I, I kind I of feel the other way. I, 
I think that's you're a very charitable person. I also my husband also says um, that once we're into our next life, he's like, you know what? Like we're done. I said till death do us part. So I'm going to be like George Clooney in the next life. I'm like, Fraud, what is wrong with you? You know, like it's a joke. We, we like to have fun. I think it's important, even when you're talking about serious subjects like the loss of a parent, like I said, no matter what age it is, you always have to see light and humor in everything. And in with that, I am going to start the show. ever heard of this service called Instacart? If you haven't, have you been hiding under a rock? I don't know about you, but I freaking hate going to the grocery store. Did I just say a cuss word? No, freaking is not a cuss word. I hate to go to the grocery store and have the chance that I might run into Karen or Brenda or any of the people I don't want to see. Instead, I get my delivery through something called Instacart. And if you don't know what it is, it's amazing. You can order whatever groceries you need, anything. They bring it to your house. They ring your ring video doorbell if you have one like I do. You can look in the door and see who it is. Know that it's the Instacart person. And if you go to my website or judgingmegan.com, forward slash Instacart, you can get free delivery on any order over $35 for first time users. So get on there, go use it. You don't want to run into Brenda in the grocery store. You don't want to run into Karen at Trader Joe's. Just do it. Hello, everyone. So you are listening to Judging Megan. I am so I'm beyond thrilled and grateful to have my guest on today, Nina Sassaman Pogue. And she is, first of all, she's my friend now. We actually met in person. I was on Nina's podcast and I actually read her book and could not put it down. I read it on a plane ride coming back from Charleston, South Carolina to Los Angeles And I'm a fangirl of this woman. Like, I fan out when I talk to her, see her. Her book is unbelievable. It's called This Is Not The End. I actually was just talking to my therapist because I had a therapy session right before this, Dr. Nay, about how great your book is and how she needs to read it and come on your show. So, Nina, welcome. I'm so happy to see you. Thank you. It's so good to be here. And I'm really flattered that you read the book on the way back, uh, back west from being out here. It was so fun to see you in person when you came out this way. I know we, we got to, we actually met on like a message board or I can't remember how we met. And we clubhouse. Oh, it was clubhouse. Okay. And, um, we, we just immediately clicked and we both kind of have the same message. We're both trauma survivors And what I love about you is, first of all, you're fabulous, you're, you're beautiful inside and out. But I, when I read your book, I, it just hit me like, you know, I figured out and we'll kind of go into this as we go along in the podcast, but, um, it's, you talk about a lot in the book about what your this is. And I really want to go into the book because I've read a million self-help books or books about loss or whatever it is. And yours just, I read yours at the exact time that I was supposed to read it. So thank you for putting that into the world. So I am just going to start, Nina, And I would love for you to share with my audience a little bit about yourself, where you were born. Your story is incredible, and and you're a public speaker. You are a former anchor in Charleston, South Carolina. So let's start from the very beginning. Where were you born? Wow, that is the very beginning. I was born in Key West, Florida. So I'm a true conch. There aren't very many people who can say they're a true conch. Uh, I was born in in Key West in the 60s when there was a Navy base there because I'm a Navy brat and we lived all over. And that just happened to be where we were stationed when I was born. My poor sister, not against anybody in Tennessee, but my poor sister was born in some little town in Tennessee. So I get the cooler birthplace. Uh, But I was born there and we moved all over with the military. And then I was a gymnast 
And that was sort of what grounded me uh, because by the time I was 13, I was a very good gymnast. Uh, and I was living in Florida at the time, at that point in Jacksonville, Florida. So I lived in Georgia and New Jersey and, you know, we've been all up and down the coast. But I was in uh, Florida and I had done really well. And I was invited to go to the U.S. Training Center. And so I moved away from home at 13 and moved into one of the Olympic training centers that happened to be uh, outside of Washington, D.C. at the time. And so I trained there and traveled all over the world as a member of the U.S. team, Japan and Hungary and Germany and Australia. It was fabulous. And then I did not make the Olympic team, which was my first big this, my devastating, I think my life is over and I've wasted my whole life in the gym and never dated a boy. What was I thinking? Uh, and so I had that first big, what I considered a giant failure at the time. And then I, you know, picked myself back up and I went to college and was one of the top recruits in the NCAA and went to LSU and was a gymnast at LSU. And then I blew out my knee uh, and couldn't and lost my sport. So once again, devastating. Thought my life was over. Like, well, who am I if I'm not a gymnast? If you think about it now, I mean, back then it was like my sweatshirts and my bumper sticker and stuff. But nowadays it would be your Instagram and your Twitter. It would be everything about you. It's how I identified. Yeah. Did you, did you, sorry to, to interrupt. Did you, um, I mean, go, first of all, leaving home at 13 and traveling you know, I mean, that's, first of all, very, very impressive. Um, but it's also, it also probably made you have to grow up way too fast. I know that I went to boarding school when I was about 15 years old. Um, that was difficult as well, you know, having to like kind of fly the coop. What was, what was your relationship like with your family? So I, I'm the youngest of four. Uh, and my brothers and sisters were all headed off to college and doing things. And I was kind of the good kid in the family. You know, they all kind of did their own thing and had screwed up in different ways. They were all very bright. My sister has her PhD. She's out in California. My brother's was actually a merit scholar, but he was playing in a band and wanted to, you know, play backup for Leonard Skinner and be a Southern rock band. And then my other brother was big into sales. So they've all had their own success. But at, at a young age, um, they were all headed off to college at the time when I was leaving to move away from home. And so my relationship was really strong with my coaches. I feel like my parents obviously were there. Dad was in the military. He was gone most of the time I was growing up. And mom was really supportive of my gymnastics and uh, everything that I wanted to do. I was not like all the other gymnasts. I won't say all, but many of the other gymnasts whose parents really pushed them and wanted them to do this. I actually begged for it. Like, can I move up there? Can I do this? It was expensive. So it was everything that I wanted. So my relationship with my parents was they had given up. They gave up a lot. They actually had given up a lot for my gymnastics already in time and money. And by that point, to let me go was difficult. Uh, but then they moved up to the D.C. area not long after, after my closest brother graduated. Uh, but the relationship was always one of... For me, in my head, and I look back on it now, my gymnastics was always coming first, and my coaches were sort of pseudo-parents for me, and I leaned into those relationships in the gym really heavily because my own parents were working and had other kids, and so I really loved the gym, and my family became that atmosphere. I think that, um, I, I, could, I mean, I, know, I now know you personally, but I think that it's... Uh, it's so cool that that was your choice. Like you loved it. There's so many young athletes that are, or, you know, kids that are actors and they have the stage parents or, you know, recently in the past few days, there's been, um, what is the tennis player, Naomi? How do you say her last name? Oh, I don't know, but I know that story. Yeah. So, but she's been open about struggling with um, depression and anxiety because there's so much pressure on, young athletes to, you know, know how to not only play a sport, but also be kind of like a spokesperson for the sport, be able to interview. It's just so much pressure for a young kid and being 13 and then getting yourself all the way to the Olympic team traveling. Can you talk more about that? Because I love the story of, because that was the time, by the way, where it was like the, the, the Olympics, like the gymnastic category was so huge, like Mary Lou Retton and Bart Connor. Like I remember 
going on a national tour. Like they had a national tour come into DC and I went with my family. It was a really, really big deal. So talk a little bit about that. It was a great time to be a gymnast. The 80s were a really cool time. So Mary Lou, her my maiden name is Rofi, like trophy without the R, Rofi. So Mary Lou Retton and Rofi, we got to room together sometimes, not because we were number one and two, but because we were both beginning with R, and it was just alphabetical. Uh, but we got to know each other and our coaches even before um, we had gone big. She was in West Virginia before she went out out west and so our coaches knew each other and we had run in some of the same circles and just east coast gymnastics uh, and then bart was on the u.s team when i went to japan so i got to know bart and that crowd so it was and tracy talavera remember that whole and julianne mcnamara and that was, it was like the- i was a little kid but i remember i can remember going to you know like you have those things as kids where you go to like a concert or like, I remember going to the ice capades, which was big when I was little and just being like, Oh my God, these people are so cool. And so that time sticks out in my mind. You know, the eighties were a very cool era, by the way. Well, and there was no social media, uh, but I was, they did the USA versus the world on Wire world of sports on the weekend. So we'd be on that and that would be exciting. It wasn't a constant influx. It was, you got glimpses of us traveling and doing things. Now us as people, we just thought it was neat to get to go to Japan and like see a Coke bottle written in Japanese was a cool thing. I remember thinking there's <laughs> McDonald's and they had corn soup at McDonald's. And I was like, why would they have corn soup at McDonald's? But that was so foreign and different. So yeah. Those kind of ex- experiences, and you were expected to be an ambassador to the of the United States. You were sent all your USA swag. Just getting that box in the mail was magical because you had sweats and t-shirts and jackets and stuff. So it was a neat thing to be a part of that scene. Whether you were at the top of the scene or one of the also rans that only got to do you know so much, but I got to be there and to travel and to be a part of it. I was actually the year, the first year that Mary Lou Retton won USA Championships. I won Miss Congeniality. So I was always the, I was always fiercely independent and very confident. Uh, And so when we would travel, a lot of times when the newspapers or the television stations or somebody would interview someone, I would, I would be the one thrown up there to do that because I was good at that. Uh, And the other girls. That's shocking to me because you didn't end up end up doing anything with that later no, in life, right? No, nothing, nothing So, so let's talk about um, how that career ended for you and how devastating. You talk about that this was your this, your original this, once we kind of go into the book. Let's talk about, I know the story, but can you share with my audience what actually happened, that it kind of ended your dreams and what you thought you were going to be doing with your life? Well, the first ending came when I didn't make the Olympic team. So only six girls make it. There's a lot of very talented young women and and men who train their whole lives and don't make the Olympics, but get to represent the United States. So I feel fortunate now looking back that I got that experience, but I didn't make the Olympic team. And I remember being curled up in a ball in the back of my, my coach had a Porsche and I was curled up in a ball in the tiny little back end of that Porsche, still in my USA sweats and just devastated driving back towards Maryland. Uh, We had driven to the competition and I was so embarrassed to go back to my high school. I was just embarrassed that everybody thought I was a loser. I felt horrible that I hadn't succeeded for my parents. Um, And I questioned why I'd given up my whole life for this sport when, you know, now it was gone. And back then, you don't see it so much now, but you get one shot at the Olympics, especially when you're a gymnast, because you grow and your body changes. Um, We have more athletes that are managing through that, but most of the time people don't. Uh, Back then, you get this one shot when your body is at the right point of growth and your strength is right and your center of gravity hasn't changed too much and you don't have boobs and like all of it sort of works. Um, So I lost that shot. And then I did pull myself back together and go to college. So it was embarrassing and I, I felt like a failure, but colleges recruited me and that gave me a boost. And then I competed for a while in college and sort of found my people again, other athletes like me who'd spent their whole lives training, not just in gymnastics, but the baseball players and the football players and the tennis folks and the swim team and the, the, the golfers. I mean, we all were athletes that are at a high level at LSU. It was a very competitive um, athletic program. So I was kind of back in the swing of things and felt like I'd found my place again. And then I, my, my 
coach had told me not to throw this beam just now because I wasn't quite ready, but I was feeling great and thought, I could totally make this. Uh, and I threw a beam dismount that I probably should not have been throwing. Now I look back and I should not have been throwing. And I blew out my knee. And it was, I landed, and it was like my, my foot planted and my knee was like an old style stick shift. It just went out in every direction. And it was just gone. And I yelled some really loud expletives in a stadium full of little girls, which I will still deny to this day that I said. But then the, the paramedics swooped in and hauled me off. And that was the end of my gymnastics career. The doctor said, you know, you've, you, it was my third knee injury. They said, if you're going to have a healthy life and walk and do things in the future, you need to stop this sport. Uh, so I did. And that was... A whole shift in my life that I just didn't know what to do with. I joke that I sort of muddled through the rest of college and majored in booze and boys because those are the things I was making up last time for. But it was not. A I did too. Day. I was yeah. that major as well. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, it was fun. Um, what I what I think is I, I understand. I obviously am not. No, never was an Olympian. I can barely do a cartwheel, but. Um, my, I had another guest, uh, Ariana Corker Smith, who was an Olympic swimmer, won, won, won a medal. And she told me the same thing. People don't realize that you only, there's only a certain amount of spots and people can train their whole lives just for this one shot, right? And then it just can be taken away. And you worked your whole life, you know, you moved away, you, you did. You put so much work into it, and then for it just to be taken away, and then to find yourself again and be like, okay, well, now I'm going to go away to college. I, I'm going to compete because this is what I love to do. This is part of my identity. This is part of who I am. And then to have it crumble again um, just must have been devastating. And when you say you kind of like major jokingly, because I joke too, about booze and boys, was that... What was that like when you actually were like, okay, I now have to just stay at school and watch all the other athletes like compete. This was my dream. What was that heartbreak like? Like, were you, how did you deal with it? I did not deal with it well. Um, I ended up getting, to keep my scholarship, I had to work for the athletic department. So I ended up getting a job in the laundry room. Uh, washing jock straps. Uh, I think I probably washed Shaquille O'Neal's jock strap. Because you told was, me that. <laughs> yeah, so that's a thing. I didn't yeah. want to be famous for that. That did not. Yeah. I did not want that to be my claim for fame. Yeah. But yeah, right yeah. after it happened, I did not do it well. I can remember having to go to physical therapy and just not getting out of bed. I would roll over and take two Percocets with a shot of Jägermeister and go back to sleep and go. I'm just not doing anything. I just didn't care. I really went through a phase where. I just didn't care if I did well in school. I didn't fail a class. I didn't even bother to drop it. I just didn't go back to one of my classes because it was a long way to get to. Um, so it killed my GPA, and I really felt sorry for myself for a long time. And then one time, I remember they would send somebody if I didn't show up for physical therapy to come get me, and I'd like bitch and moan, and I'd go. But there was one time they put me in the pool um, in a in a harness type thing, and it had been weeks since I'd gotten out of the hospital. And back then, this was a huge surgery. I was all like, now they get you right back up. But back then, I was in a big brace and in a wheelchair, and really, it was not a good scene. But they put me in this brace thing and had me trying to walk in the water and just use my legs. And I think some act of a higher power than me, uh, they had just drained the pool and refilled it, so it was a little low, and my foot hit the bottom as I was doing it and there was this moment where and it'd been about three weeks but my foot at the bottom and I felt like a muscle in there it like hurt but actually it kind of worked and I went oh like there's actually this is I'm going to be able to do this again like in my head I was never going to walk again you know life was going to be horrible but I had this moment in that pool where I, or something clicked and I decided to get off my ass and start doing stuff. And that's when I went ahead and got the job with the athletic department and started going to classes again. I was about three weeks or so into feeling sorry for myself. So it was a hard comeback for the semester. Is it, isn't that interesting how you could just have one moment in life where everything could be wrong? I, I had something happen to me and I've openly talked about it on this podcast where I, I've, had a like and you know a cup a rough patch rough couple of years 
a very, very depressed, bad friend breakup. Um, and, at, you know, we talk about sometimes that I felt hopeless, didn't want to go on. So I take this long walk every day and it's about four miles. And I take my two maniac labs with me and we walk by the beach, which was my happy place. And one day I was walking and I was literally two inches away from being hit by a car. Like this car came flying around the corner and almost hit me, almost could have killed me. He was going really, really fast. And in my head, I went, oh my God, like, why am I thinking I don't want to do this anymore? Why am I thinking I don't want to live? You know, so it's interesting to think about like moments and you talk in your book, not to bring up the book again, and we will more throughout the podcast, but fractions of time in life and like life's just like a fraction of time. And I want to kind of go back more into that towards after we finish your sharing your stories, but that what you just said hit me because it's so true that you can pick yourself up. Something can happen so devastating like what happened to you that that was your identity that's that was your this right that you talk about in your book and then you go wait a minute my leg still works I still have a muscle I'm going to come back I can keep going so I love that I love that story and there's the moments that make or break you and and it's how you look at them I don't know what it was in that moment but I can I can picture where I was in the pool I can picture how it felt Uh, to this day and that was a very long time ago but yeah so I got myself going I got through school and I worked for the athletic department and I was fortunate that one of the people who walked by every day and saw me in the laundry room took some interest in what else I might want to do and it was a counselor and he it took me a long time to talk with him finally but I he did help me find something in sports information and that's how I went from college you know I finished up college took me five years plus summers to get out, I, you know, was not uh, doing well. It was not uh, my best effort, but I did finish. And then I got out and I had a job um, in the sports information department. And then with the local TV station, I got an internship with the local TV station and fell in love with television and rolled into this new exciting part of my life that I never could have imagined when I thought my whole life was gymnastics. But I, as soon as I stepped in a newsroom, I was like, ha, huh. This is a rush. I loved this. So I found a new thing that I loved. Yeah. So you had a whole new this. Yeah. A new happy this. A new new high. A new happy this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So talk about, because um, I've talked about this before, Uh, I lived in Charleston, South Carolina, like for six months of my life before moving to LA. My mom had a house on Kiowa. I have all my relatives pretty much live in Charleston. I love, love, love Charleston. It's my favorite city. Um, Talk about how you kind of like went into the news and then became the anchor of the of the local TV. Yeah, so I did I did news in WBRZ in Baton Rouge, and they first hired me because I knew all the other athletes and I knew the sports scene. So I was interviewing other athletes and helping the sports guys get some interviews. And then I was doing grunt work, pulling cables and running a teleprompter and archiving a bunch of tapes, just anything that nobody else wanted to do. But I was happy to do whatever. I just, I had the bug. I just wanted to be there. And so even though there's this one guy who would who was the assignment assistant news director, and he would throw me just the worst horrible assignments now take all those tapes and archive them because computers were new we were putting all the old stuff into computers so i would get all these horrible assignments that everybody else didn't want to do and i just thought it was cool to be in a newsroom so i did them and loved it and i excelled in that space until i was been a reporter at wbrz and then i was doing like a little weekend morning show because they needed somebody to fill that spot i was just there with my hand held higher and said i would do anything for the stuff that nobody else wanted to do and I fortunately, while I was also there, uh, our, the governor came in and when he it was the David Duke Edwin Edwards runoff and uh, Governor Edwards won and he came in to do meet the press. And I was there in my curlers getting ready to do a cut in and left them in the back door. And I had this weird conversation with him and he said, would you want to come work for me? It's a longer story, but I won't go into the whole thing. And I I ended up saying yes well he said I said no at first I said I love what I do and I really love the news business and he asked me what I was making and I said I, well, I told him what I was making it was $14,500 a year 
that was my salary. And he wow. said, I will double it tomorrow. And I said, and I will see you in the morning. So I went to work for the governor as one of his press secretaries, uh, assistant press secretary in education, which pretty much meant if he was going to go to Thibodeau, Louisiana, I would look up who the best principal was there and find out stories and add it to his speech. It wasn't, you know, heavy lifting. Uh, but I was only in that for about four months, and I didn't like politics. I did not want to be a part of it. I wanted to be asking the questions, not answering the questions. The pace of it was slow for me. So I started sending out resume tapes And back when you sent a tape. And I just wanted to be back towards the beach. So all up and down the East Coast, Charleston included, I sent tapes. And this offer came up from this little TV station in Charleston, South Carolina. I did not know anyone in the entire state of South Carolina, not a single soul. And I took the job as a reporter. I loaded everything I had up into a little U-Haul, hooked my Jeep to the back, put my black lab on the seat next to me. And I drove to South Carolina by myself, not knowing anybody. Again, I've always been very fiercely independent. And uh, I love that. We're so like, we're so much alike that way. That's why I love you so much. Because I did the same thing moving to LA. I didn't know anyone. Drove all the way across country in my Jeep, by the way, my white Jeep Wrangler. Um, It takes, takes guts to do that. At the time, it just seemed like an adventure. It didn't, I didn't think of it as guts. Now I look back and think, yeah, that was pretty crazy. It took a lot of guts. (laughs) But I love how hard you were. It does take work. Like, I think that a lot of people don't realize, you know, if you're attractive, they think, oh, you're attractive. You could just be a news anchor and get into TV. It's a lot of hard work, right? Yeah, and crappy schedules. And they and, and because I was attractive, there was actually an assignment editor. Her name was Brenda, and I will never forget her. She did not like me because she thought I was just a pretty girl that was going to come in and get a job. And so she worked me really hard and questioned everything I turned in and questioned every story that I'd help write. And she made me better for it. Um, But there were people all along the way who truly was working against me um, to get that opportunity. Now, in other instances, it worked for me. I mean, obviously, the governor thought I was just another pretty girl to have around him when he traveled. That was a thing. So I took advantage of it when I could. But at other times, it really worked against me. And it was a lot of work. And then when I got to Charleston, I was actually a reporter and a political reporter and I did investigative reporting and I filled in on the morning show when the morning show person moved on and then they gave it to somebody else and on the weekend show when the weekend person um, moved on to a new station and then they gave it to somebody else and they would never give me the anchor gig uh, on any of the shows and then at one point the evening person moved on and I fought hard and went in and, and pitched myself and I got the job as the evening anchor in uh at in charleston and then it went really well and this community loved me and i loved them back and worked hard at it and i was voted charleston's favorite news anchor for 10 years in a row and started a nonprofit. i just loved this community and it was reciprocal we just charleston became very much a part of my life and i continue i'm still here i i interviewed other places and i it's a great it's a great it's a great great city let's talk about um what like you at this point you were married you have you have three children but you had little babies right when you were an anchor you you were giving birth to babies how many what is the age difference between your well the my I, I gave birth to two of them and they're 23 months apart uh so they are close um and then when i remarried so i was i was married i went through a divorce very public divorce another big this in my book very public divorce with everybody on tv knowing that i was getting divorced and then i married the morning weatherman very scandalous and everybody thought there was some big story behind that that was not nearly as exciting as the real story which was we both went through divorces and then decided we liked each other but the uh People always have to make something out of nothing. You know, that's humanity for you, Yeah, yeah. I wish it was nearly as much fun as I heard stories about. (laughs) Divorce is never fun. (laughs) But, yeah, so I I I had two children, and I had them while I was on TV. So if you meet people in Charleston, they'll go, oh, I remember when you were big and pregnant and, you know, how huge you were. And people would say... You know, call into the television station and say, tell her to push away from the table. She's going to blow. I was so big because I'm short and I was as wide as I was tall. I mean, my earlobes were fat. There was nothing left on me that could expand by the time I had those babies. Oh, my God. I gained 60 pounds with both my kids and I even gained weight in my yes. nose. I was like one of those fat pregnant ladies that like, you know, some of them are super cute and you're like, 
God, why couldn't I have been like that lady when I was pregnant? I was, I looked like Mrs. Doubtfire, but I was not (laughs) cute. So I, I, I understand. There was nothing. I used so much (laughs) contour and tried to paint on a cheekbone every night. Like, and and there was nothing, there was nothing attractive about it. I put on lots of makeup thinking maybe my eyes could look good or something. (laughs) Yeah, that was back when big earrings were in. So I'd, I'd wear bigger earrings, anything, but just, yeah, I was very large. But if you meet people, who were in Charleston in the, at the time, they remember because I was on air three shows a day every night right up till I had these babies. Um, and they, of course, the TV station made a thing about it when I had them too. So it was a neat time to be in television and I enjoyed that. Uh, and then the next big this in my story comes up. So along with doing cool things and loving this community and, and doing a nonprofit, starting a nonprofit and doing all that, um, the TV station... Uh, at that time, across the nation, it was happening, and it happened here in Charleston too. They downsized, and but they looked at their budgets and decided that this was costing too much money to have these news anchors that had been there a long time and made too much money. They could get somebody younger and cheaper to do these jobs. So they let me go in a budget cut. Uh, I won Charleston's favorite news anchor on a Thursday, and they called me in and let me go on a Friday. I seriously thought they were calling me in to like, give me a raise or a bonus or tell me how great I was. So, again, back to this yeah. just loss uh, and this embarrassment and shame and fear and all the stuff that goes with a big this in your life where your whole world is going in a direction, and then it's just giant plot twist in your story, just going in another direction. You're not sure exactly what to do. And there, and it's kind of like you like grieving again, um, thinking that oh, like I just got this, and then it's like a giant kick in the stomach, right? You think, oh, I'm going in here, I'm going to get a raise, and then it's like, sorry, we don't need you anymore, and that pain of of just being like, I'm not good enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not. I that must have been awful. It's every little girl insecurity all resurfaces in those moments. Like, what is it about me they don't want? You know, now I can look back. I've had to do forced attrition as a as a as, as a, in a leadership team of a tech company, so I understand what it looks like to have a budget cut and have to make hard choices. And I know how hard that had to be for them to come to that decision. So, but at the time, all it did was hurt. And it was, I didn't know what to think or what to do. And I'm in full makeup because I was getting ready to go do a news brief. And I had a sitter with my kids and it was five o'clock news time. And I was thinking, what do I do? I couldn't, I wasn't ready to go home and deal with my kids. I couldn't go out anywhere because everybody would be like, why are you not on TV? So I left the TV station they just handed me my bag and walked me out. They couldn't even go back to my desk. They held an all-hands meeting and said, Nina's no longer with us, and we're not going to talk about it. Ugh. It was like a, all my best friends were in that space, and they weren't allowed to talk to me. It was just a really a, a singular alone time. Again, it goes back to, I think, why I'm so fiercely independent, because in those moments, a lot of times it's you picking yourself up. And I drove out to the beach, and I walked uh, and just tried to figure out what my next steps were and cried a lot and was just felt lost. You know, I didn't figure anything out while I walked. I just went to a place where I could kind of be lost and by myself for a while. And it took me a, while, um, a, a long time to put it back together after that, too. And I, I joke in the book, and you read the book, I said, my, my dog died, my marriage fell apart, and then I lost my job. It was all within about a three-month piece there that world, the it, world It's crumbled. like it happened in happens in threes sometimes like you know I I've gotten laid off I was never in tv um which I should have been an anchor you would have been so fantastic uh (laughs) you totally I'm joking you've got such the great Um, I would have been like I would have been like the bimbo weather person (laughs) and I don't and as a woman you know but I would have loved it I would have worn the heels Mm. and anyway but what I was gonna say is I, I've worked in corporate America and I was a top performer in sales. I, and my company did, but same thing. They started to do budget cuts and they moved my territory to Colorado. And I am a, I'm a California girl. I'm like, I'm not moving to Colorado. So they were like, okay, here's your severance. Bye-bye. And it's, it's an, it's a massive ego bruise. You know, when you're somebody that is your job is part of like your identity. And then on top of that, being in TV 
and not being able to walk out your front door without, I mean, I was in Charleston with you a month ago and people still recognize you now. (laughs) So I can't imagine how difficult that must have been. So, so then dealing with the divorce and then, you know, um, losing your job and going through all of this stuff at one time, did, did you then like start to pick yourself up again and then not to bring up the most horribly tragic thing that is so painful. When I read the book, I was on the airplane and I, and I really did start crying. I mean, uh, do you mind kind of sharing what happened with that story and like where you were? Cause it's just a lot. It's always difficult to share. It was easier to share in a book than it is in, you know, like this or from a stage because I don't, I always hate putting even the images of it in people's minds because you can't undo it, but it was a devastating time and it's important to share because it, didn't define me and it didn't end me Mm -hmm. uh, though at the time I thought it was the end of everything that I could possibly imagine as happiness in my life so I ended up going to another tv station uh, and then the guy who was the anchor there was already a friend and we had a blast and we did news together for about four years we became great friends our kids were about the same age our boys played ball together and his uh, he and his wife had another baby while we were there so I had my two little ones uh, I married my husband, Ben, who had one right in between. So when you ask how close my kids were, actually, this month is a fun one because right now for this little period of a few weeks, they're 22, 22, and 23, which just sounds funny, and they're not twins. And you love and you love to go out with them, and you love uh, this period of this period of time hanging out with them at this age I I love high school and I love college I just think it's so neat to have little people you know who've made some little humans that I really like hanging out with they're really good people and kind and smart and funny and I can't say enough nice things about them at the time though back to the story so at the time um, they were little and I'm in this new job with uh, my new co-anchor and we're about four years in and our, our ratings are good and we are doing great and we enjoy working together and I had taken the day off to be a normal mom uh, and actually pick my kids up from the bus stop because it's something you don't get to do uh, when you are in television. You work two to midnight, so you feel like you miss out on a lot with your kids uh, after school stuff. So I drove over to the bus stop so to grab up the kids and go run some errands and things. And the bus stop was at my co-anchor's house. Just happened to be that's where the bus led off and the corner house. And there was always lots of kids there and other moms. And it was just a fun scene after school. So I got there a little early and talking with my co-anchor's wife. They had a new baby who was crawling around. He was about 11 months old and just starting to crawl. And we were just hanging out. The school bus comes. You can picture a noisy suburban uh, like suburbia school bus like it comes around the corner you can hear the kids you know talking and yelling and chatting before it even comes around the corner and all the kids pile off the bus and our boys pile off and they're like third graders and they're they're throwing their backpacks and want to go throw a ball and hang out and all that energy after the long day of school and so everybody you know chats for a little bit we say our goodbyes and we go to leave because everybody has stuff to do after school so i get my son in the car and strap him in with his seatbelt and we're going to go run some errands. And then I go to back up. Now in the hustle and bustle of all of this scene in this driveway, in this neighborhood, in this corner house, um, no one had noticed, but the baby had crawled up next to the tire of my car. And so I backed up and sweet little Sam was under the tire of my car and he was 11 months And uh, in that moment, um, I could see my friend out in front of us. Uh, There, people screamed. We jumped out. It was just, the the scene was probably even worse than what I want to even paint in your head. A a woman across the street saw it out her window, and she actually was lost her bodily functions and could barely get to the phone to call 911. But his skull was crushed, and his facial bones were crushed. I mean, he was under the car tire and so we you know in the moment you don't know what you're doing scooped her up scooped him up threw her in the car drove 100 miles an hour as fast as that little car could go I still will never drive that same vehicle again I mean the sound of the engine gets me Uh, and we drove into literally into the uh, drive air up area of the emergency room until the doors open that's how close we were to the glass doors Um, and got him to 
some doctors. You know, we, we look back and think, if we'd have waited, would he have made it? We, we didn't think in the moment. We just scooped him up and her up and put them in the car and went. Um, the good news is, and I'll let everybody off the hook, he lived. And he is graduating from high yeah. school, and he's a healthy, happy, good-looking boy. When you're 11 months old, your skull is not, the sutures aren't all the way. And just from miraculous doctors to miraculous coincidences, I had just gotten a new car that was about half the size of my old car. There's so many things that happened that, and we didn't wait for an ambulance and, and she did all the right things and I did all the right things. We just, we got there and, and he survived. Lots of prayer vigils and lots of surgeries and it was a long road and we didn't know for a long time if he would survive and she and I, you know, held hands and walked down the hospital hall together and said, we're going to get through this together and uh, chose to lead with love and get through this loving each other um, and call it an accident. But it took us both a long time and some good therapists to get to the word accident. I, I, I know that that's got to be like a horrifically hard story to talk about. And thank you for sharing it. Part of the reason why I think it's so important that you share that horrific story is because I know that we've talked about how do you go on after something like that? How do you not want to like end your life because of feeling that guilt and that pain and a baby and all of the things that you must have felt that you were dealing with. And, and on top of that, being a celebrity, you know, having to walk out and people knowing who you are, what, what you did. Charleston's a very small town. So the, the, just every single thing as I read in the book, I, I have to tell you, it makes me uh, emotional because if, please read her book, by the way, everyone. So sweet. This is not the end. I just really want you to read it because she talks about how it's just a fraction of time. So if you can like pick yourself up from something that horrific and and like do all of the things that you did, like I think I remember you telling me, or maybe you talked about it in the book, how you were like, I'm gonna go grab coffee with your husband at the time. And then you were like, this is such a bad idea. Like, why did I do this? Um, can you kind of go into like, how, how did you do it? How did you go on? I mean, I know you don't have a choice, right? It's like this, you stay on this planet or you don't. Right. And I had two small so children. What did you do? I had two small children. Yeah. And uh, so if you think about it, no one did the news. I mean, he, my co-anchor zoomed to the emergency room. I wasn't there. The weekend crew came in and did the news for weeks. No one did the news. The other TV stations are covering it. I had te- I had television trucks on my front lawn. It was the front page of the newspaper being delivered to my door. I, I became part of the news, and so there was no real escaping it. And like I said, small town, big fish, little pond here. Ten years, Charleston's favorite news anchor. People, I couldn't go out and just assume people didn't already know this story because, again, they were prayer vigils, and it was what it was in the the radio talked about. It. I mean, it was what everybody was talking about. Um, in my head, uh, I, I didn't want to go on. I mean, there I had, thank goodness, a handful of girlfriends who showed up at the house and sat with me and and helped me just not lose it all together. Um, I wanted to call the hospital every five minutes. I wanted to go sit outside of his room and people said, she needs to do her piece. You need to you know, do your piece. And I only went a few times. I had some good people around me giving me some good counsel. My husband kept the television off and kept the newspapers from me and wouldn't let me answer the phone. Uh, so, and took my phone from me and just kind of shielded me from a lot of it, which was very, I'm very thankful for the, the people that were around me at the time. Uh, and I had this feeling of responsibility and uh, through my therapist and trying to figure out what to do with with myself I chose to go back on the air which was the hardest thing to do uh, but I needed to do this on my own terms and I felt like I needed to be there so my co-anchor didn't one of us needed to go back on the air and I certainly didn't want him to have to do that Uh, so I went back on the air first 
so he could be home with his family. And then he came back on the air a few weeks later. And I remember sitting on the end of his dock, uh, you know, here in Charleston, we all have you know, you know, little moments on the water and just going, can we do this? And it was very surreal. And we weren't even sure if we could, like, how, how, how long are we going to make it? Um, because it was just hard to sit in that space next to each other every night. It was, it was just painful. We loved each other. We wanted to be okay, but it's still a hard thing to do. But he, um, he and I went back on the air together for a year. And Sam healed, the, the little boy healed and got out of the hospital. And uh, his mom actually became a, a you know, patient advocate. She continues to work at the hospital. She took her life in a new direction. I went back on the air for a year and then decided that it was enough. Um, I left on my own terms after that and left television and got into tech. I just decided that I was finished being a public person for a while. Uh, and I had done what I needed to do to make sure that um, I was still me. I was, I was going to be okay. And the language, a lot of it, and I talk about it in my book, it was the language that I was using to describe it, getting to the word accident. It was the way in which I talked about it became what came back to me. Um, but during those times, I mean, there were days when I would stand in the mirror with my sons, my sons, <laughs> my big boys, like they were little back then. I would stand in the mirror with my husband's razor and think if I just slice up my face, I won't be pretty. And then they won't want me to do the news. Like, I just wanted any way out uh, of trying to get out of that situation. That that, amain, that amount of pain is just, it's, hor- it's so hard. So you, I th- you also kind of talk about in the book about a time where you were, I think, wa- on a walk. And you talked about wanting to walk into traffic. I... I think, like I said earlier, I, I, I believe everything happens for a reason. I, we've talked about this, you and I, off the podcast, I think. And um, I, don't, I don't mean that in a way where everybody's like, oh, like in a condescending way where, oh, everything happens for a reason. Or I'm trying to think of the things that people say that drive me bonkers. But like Time heals all wounds or God I, has a plan. Time yeah. heals. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm in a birth yeah, exactly. in your face. But when I read when I read the book, I really believe that. Like, I was sitting on that plane. I was sitting next to two weird people that were making out the entire <laughs> flight. I was in the back, the back seat of the oh, plane. Oh, like The very back seat because I... Yeah, because I got on an earlier flight and I just didn't care because I just wanted to get home. And, you know, I, I, for me, my, my issues with being suicidal or wanting to end my life are pretty fresh. It's in the past few years that I've struggled and I just like appreciate so much when somebody shares such deep wounds and tells you how to get like what they did to get through it. So I was hoping that maybe you would talk about the analogy of the fraction of time because it really helped me. And honestly, I think about it a lot even now for, and that, and I read your book like a month ago and sometimes when I'm having a hard day, which I still do, um, I go, well, Megan, I say this to myself in my head. I go, it's just like, this is the amount, how many days, and this is the fraction of time, and just keep going. Yeah. So can you talk about that? Because I love, I love yeah, that. Yeah, and I, I do too. Chapter six is my favorite. So even if you don't want to read my whole book, folks, just read chapter six, and it'll give you a different perspective on all this no, stuff. No, you need to, I'm demanding <laughs> all of my listeners, go read the You're book. Funny. Now, if it's you don't read. read it, don't listen to my, you can I'm joking. in a few <laughs> hours. Yeah, it's not, not, not a thing. I book. did, and I'm not a, re- a big reader, and I read the whole thing in, in a plain ride. Well, the goal of is, the book was to... I think I read Yeah, the it. goal of the book was to create something that yeah. people could just pick up and consume very quickly and get what they needed. The book's not about me, folks. It's about you and whatever you're going through. I use my stories as a backdrop to tell you how to get through them. But uh, I, I, that's actually a good tee-up to this question because I wasn't sure how I got through it until later. I, so I, I get through it, and I get and I move on. I get a job in tech, and then I have some great success in that. And then... I realized through time that on my calendar, if you work in corporate, people can just book your calendar for something. And I kept getting booked for these sinks, like these 30-minute sink, 30-minute sink. And they were 
sometimes people I knew and sometimes people I wasn't sure why I was meeting with this person. And I realized that people were just booking time with me to kind of, they had something tough going on in their life and they just needed somebody to talk to. So I became that person because people knew I'd gone through stuff and they wanted to me to help them through whatever they were going through. Um, a woman whose husband died, a friend who was diagnosed with cancer, another guy who was having panic attacks on one of the bridges, and just whatever they were going through. And so it wasn't until later, Megan, that I really understand how I got through it. And I sat down to write that because not everybody has such public failures as I had, or public this is public, you know, big traumatic events in their life. And I had had five very public events in my life. Um, and I had gotten through them and gone on to even bigger success on the other side. So what did that say about me? And what weird thing in my brain was triggered to have me have more success on the side of every, on the other side of each of these failures. And that forced me to do some real homework and understand what I had done. Um, and that's when I realized that I came up with the concept of this. Like there's the everyday this is. So I'll, I'll do the this is for you. Um, so there's the everyday this is. So every day, you know, you spill your coffee on your outfit and have to change clothes. You hit traffic, something happens, and it's not what you have planned for the day, and it takes you in another direction, and you have to work through it to get to where you're going. It's just stuff happens. Those are the T-H-I-S, lowercase this is. And then there's the capital T, H-I-S's, which is maybe you break your leg at your selling season in your company. So you're for a few months, you're going to have to do things differently and fix stuff. Or you get sick. People who got COVID and, and healed or got better, uh, they, they had to change things for a little while. Uh, and so whatever it is that in your life that had to maybe sidetrack you for weeks or even a few months, those are the capital T-H-I-S's that hit us. And you may get one of those in a year or one every couple of years, some big things that sidetrack your plans for your life. And then there are these capital T, capital H, capital I, capital S's that I talk about in the book. And those are the biggies. And I have had five of them that I identify there, um, divorce and losing my sport and you know, the accident with Sam, like the biggies that are, that took my life in a whole new direction. And those um, are, are the way we deal with those. Uh, the word resilience is what came up. So the little ones kind of build your chinks in your armor. And each time you deal with one of those bigger ones, you get a little stronger. So by the time I had had this accident with Sam, I had had some big losses in my life and some big changes. And it gave me that sort of strength or this knowledge that life was going to go on um, on the other side of this. And I don't think I consciously I realized it, but at the time I did assign language to it with the help of my therapist, calling it an accident and saying we are all working through it together and we are going to be okay and collectively taking ownership um, and my own ownership in what had happened. Uh, and then I also had to look at this timeline of my life and realize those things didn't end me or define me. You know, people didn't look at me in my 40s as an executive of the software company and think that I was a that I was a gymnast. They didn't even know. So those things didn't define me. How did I do that? So here's the lifetime timeline, folks. If you draw a line from just a straight line across your paper, like it's a timeline, um, and a horizontal line, and then you put it in 10-year increments, 0 to 100, and that's your life, if you live to be 100. And for me, I need to drink less wine and take better care of myself. But if I live to be 100, me too, that's sister. what that timeline. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that timeline would look like if I cut the sugars out and quit drinking red wine. Um, so in the 0 to 19 years, 80% of those years, so when I hit 19 and I my, my, lost my gymnastics uh, because I blew out my knee, that was more than 80% of my whole life I'd spent in a gym. It, Of course, it felt like my whole life was over because when I was 19, that was 80% of everything I knew about life. It felt like my life was over. When I hit 50, I had been parenting kids at home for 20 years. And that piece of the gymnastics world was a, a much smaller fraction of my life. It was in the in the teen. It wasn't like twenty eight percent of my life or something like that. And then parenting kids at home was thirty percent of my life because I'd had kids at home. So as you go, each 
on in life, each thing that happens, each section of your life becomes a fraction of the big picture. Think of it this way. When you were 10, Megan, this is a fun one. When you were 10, remember how long the summers felt? They just felt like they went on forever. Yeah. And they just like, yes. Yeah. And then yeah. there just were magical times and it just felt like you had all this time. Well, when you're 10, that year being 10 was one tenth of your whole life. It's a, like one tenth of everything you knew was that year. And it seems such a huge, long time. So now when you're 40 and you're parenting and you're running around and the school ends and then the school year begins, that summer when you're 40 seems like it goes by five yeah, minutes, exactly. <laughs> five minutes. Yeah. The whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. already scheduled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the camps, right. everything. So that yes. summer seems like like a slash. It goes by so fast. Well, that summer's that year of your life when you're 40 is one fortieth of your whole life. It's the same 365 days. But when you're 10, it is one tenth of your life. And when you're 40, it is one fortieth of your life. So if you can just look at your timeline and write down the big things. I, I call it the reverse resume. And I do this with some people that I, I help coach through tough times. Put all the good stuff that happened to you at the top. Say getting married, having babies, moving to a new town, fun awards that you got, any accolades at the top. And then down below the line, write down all the heavy shit you had to deal with, like getting sick or breaking a leg or having you know, a diagnosis of something or a divorce or losing your job. And then map those out and do a little math around them and you will see that the things in your life come and go. Success doesn't last forever and failure doesn't last forever. They come and go and they become a fraction of the big giant story that is your amazing life. Like everybody's story unfolds in that timeline. New towns you move to, new people come and go in your timeline. Maybe a person was in there just for a little bit of character development. They don't, they don't get to stay in your timeline for long. They were just there for a bit. So it's a really neat way to look at your life and to put some perspective around it. Because no matter what you're going through right now, this is a chapter, and I call it a really crappy chapter. You may be in a really crappy chapter of your life right now, but it's just one chapter. It's not the whole freaking book. Don't let it be the book. Don't stay there. And honestly, like, the, the it helped me so much because I'm still in my crappy chapter. I'm getting, I think I'm getting out of my crappy chapter. Who knows what my next chapter is? But I just... The, the way that you laid out that way was, I, I mean, I really was crying on the plane thinking, okay, I have hope. Like, I'm not going to, you know, these, I talk about like my breakup with the friends and like the friend group and how devastating it has been for me. Um, but I'm not, I might not even know those people in a year or two years. I'm not even going to care, you know, like I, little by little, I'm pulling myself out and so I think it's so important for people to think of things that way. And I really think that you're a genius <laughs> that you came up with that idea because it's so smart and so true. Um, I kind of want to end the podcast and wrap it up and talk about where you are now, because um, I love that you're speaking. I love all the things that you're doing. Can you kind of tell my audience a little bit about you? Oh, and also... She, Nina has a podcast called This Seriously Sucks. I actually did an episode myself. And she's my husband came into the kitchen one day and I, I was listening to my inter, the, the interview that Nina did. And he goes, God, she's really good. I'm like, well, she should be. She's a, she was on TV for a really long time. <laughs> so tell me about what you're doing now. Uh, thank, you, thank you. And I loved having you on the podcast. And it's new to me. So I appreciate the, the vote of confidence. It's so fun. I love it a lot. It's called This Seriously Sucks, The Right Podcast When Life Goes Seriously Wrong. And I have people on who there who have gone through some really tough times. And they're talking about how they got through them, similar to what you do here. So that's why we jam so well. Uh, we're in the same we space. We yeah. are in the same space. Yeah, which I love. I love. You're helping other people. And so that's, are you. You're an incredible Thanks. person. Yeah. So I, I wrote my first book. During the pandemic, I used the downtime to write my second book, which is called uh, But I Want Both, A Working Mom's Guide to Creating a Life She Loves. And I really wrote that for a handful of women who I've been mentoring who 
really were not wanting to quit their jobs, but feeling like they were failing as a mother if they didn't quit their jobs. So it's just a guide to, I for all of you crazy people out there like me and probably like Megan too, who just, we like working and we want to be a good mom too. It's about how to create that balance um, and, and create a life that you love. Uh, so I had plans. This was my big plan uh, was to step out of corporate and become a speaker. And so I wrote the book and I got organized on what my thoughts were. And I spent a year researching. I got to the word resilience and I researched a lot on resilience. Uh, and I talk about the intersection of personal and professional resilience. So I speak at conferences on creating a culture of resilience in your workplace so your company can survive anything. And so that became a good topic for the pandemic. Uh, but they speaker world shut down obviously for the most part so that's why i pivoted did the second book and started the podcast so i could continue to engage with people and learn more and you know dig into how people are getting through difficult times so i'm a speaker i'm an author i don't have any plans for a third book unless it's a children's book on resilience which i've been noodling a little bit Uh, but i really want to jump back into the speaker world and the research i've been doing is around companies and individuals and this intersection of personal professional resilience and and how we can build that and help all of our people who are coming back from this pandemic who are so friggin exhausted from pivoting and being resilient like it's been a tough year for everybody how do you click into a new gear because we're all tired of being told to be resilient i love what you're doing you are you are my idol <laughs> no you're my um, friend i i'm being i'm being serious though like when i when we went to lunch i was so excited to meet you in person because we just clicked. It was so fun we could have sat there and, all day and i know it was so fun nina i'm just so grateful to you that you came on my podcast you're you're a warrior you're a fighter I'm so psyched to know you personally now. Um, I can't wait to see what you do. And I love that you're helping other people with your stories and your podcast and your speaking and keep going. And in closing, keep living, keep praying and keep growing. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hanna Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hanna quality for your most precious gift. Hanna Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hanna baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com.